Welcome to the Moon Podcast, featuring stories, conversations, and commentary about feminist agroecology from around the world. I'm your host, Anika Rice. The Moon Podcast explores everything from moon cycles to midwifery, from crop rotation to kombucha brewing, from herbalism to homesteading. How do women, both rural and urban, connect to nature? And what does that process of connection look like? Please excuse the brief hiatus from podcast production for the month of September. I was in the Sierra Nevadas in California backpacking on the John Muir Trail for a few weeks, so stay tuned for an episode about female through hikers. In this episode, called Forestry and Raft Guiding in the Northwest, you'll hear from two rad women who have outdoor careers based in Oregon. Haley is a trail worker and conservationist who has done forestry work with adults and youth groups for the last 10 years. She also works on an organic farm, so she comments a bit about being a female farm worker. Kelsey is a raft guide from California who leads multi-day trips on Oregon's Rogue River. She's also a backpacking instructor for adolescent girls in the Sierra Nevadas, helping the next generation experience the wilderness. We'll start with Haley. I got to interview her in August of 2016, sitting in a sunny field in Southern Oregon. Applegate Valley in Southern Oregon, and for the last 10 years I've been doing forestry work, um, tending the forests of Oregon mostly, Idaho and Washington, um, and a bit in Arizona, so building hiking trails, um, thinning forests, pulling invasive species, um, and working with youth, and also working on some farms in the valley. So why is it important to you to work with forests and forestry conservation? Uh, I think in the in the changing world, a lot of our forests are they're dying, um, and they're not they're not healthy. And so to look around and to see where things are going, whether it be native species are being crowded out or killed from chemicals, um, or our forests are going too dense uh, again not letting light down again like killing out plants like in in a really dense biodiverse region so i feel it's important to keep those things alive and well and maintain the balance um, in nature and also to keep that relationship between us as people I think it's it's our responsibility to, to take care of and tend the land. Can you tell me a bit about how the logistics of how you've done that through trail work? Like, what have you done on a, on a day-to-day, and what kind of plants have you worked with, and what ecosystems? So on a day-to-day, if we're working on a trail, um, what we'll do is we'll get together as, as a crew, and myself and another leader... 
Um, we'll take a group of 10 teenagers or adults um, out into the forest, and sometimes we'll hike for, for miles and miles, and we'll carry in all of our tools, all of our digging tools, and and our saws, and, um, and we go to work. And so our idea is to read the land um, and find, to find kind of durable surfaces and places that, um, that we can guide people to. So we're looking for things like waterfalls and we're looking for also r things like rare plants and rare species that we don't necessarily want to run a trail through. Um, we want to keep things comfortable and easy and accessible. Um, and we, and we dig, I mean, it's a lot of digging. It's a lot of earth that we move. Uh, and it seems it seems really substantial when we're doing it, but in the big picture, it's it's such a tiny impact um, that kind of opens up a way for people to get out there. Um, but we dig, and so we're like we're bent over, and we're swinging, and we're swinging, and we're yelling, and we're moving rocks, and we're building things, and we're making bridges, and and it sounds like and we'll cut and we'll cut down trees and in the northwest it's i mean it seems like a thing like we're doing conservation work why are we cutting down trees um but the fact is is that there's more trees here than <laughs> there's supposed to be um so and it's kind of the difference too of of what's if we take one tree down and allow people to come see that place and uh, maybe we'll people will start to have more of an appreciation for that space um, and as far as things like weeds, like we'll pull things like um, blackberries, like Himalayan blackberries or scotch broom, um, things that generally suck the nutrients from the the other plants around them um, and end up creating just dense zones where the soil's depleted. Um, there's not, it's not as biodiverse as it should be in a healthy way. Uh, and so we do that, and we kind of just move through our projects and, and see what we can create. A lot of what we do here has to do with water um, and watching where water goes. As it's kind of, as a, tr as a trail worker, water is one of our biggest enemies um, and one of our best friends. But it's it happens so fast here. Um, sometimes we'll get 40 inches of rain, you know, in the season, and everything will wash away so we do a lot of drainage a lot of rock work um just to keep to keep our trails intact um and yeah keep spaces keep spaces open there's a lot of wilderness around the northwest and public lands that we as residents and visitors can't access at all because the trails aren't maintained anymore um and it's hard hard work it really really is a challenging between just dynamics of people and just the different aches and pains and and colds and things that come with with living outside and working outside and, and working that hard outside. How long will your hitches be? So we'll generally go out for five weeks at a time. And so and some people will stay on longer but especially with the youth, um, five weeks other trail crews will sometimes have like eight days on, six days off, and sometimes it just caters to like whether or not you're going to be way out in the backcountry, um, or or you know what the the project is, how accessible it is, if it's going to be kind of a pain to drive in and drive out, or if you can drive, you know, or 
sometimes you'll get helicoptered in or boated in and um, trying to figure out all all that stuff keeping communication communication is a big one out there um, so like sometimes you'll you'll think you're gonna be somewhere for three weeks and then your radio dies or something and so sometimes you'll have to pull out or if there's any sort of injuries or you have to get out for any reason it's all subject to change but with one group we're generally there for five weeks at a time which is a good like gestation period for people I think to like unlearn their their norms of of civilized life and kind of get out there and really kindle that respect and I don't know, like feel feel some kind of a bond or some kind of like a resonant connection with the land like five weeks really resets the self I think yeah so since you're on the move with this trail work working in at different spots or in different forests how do you cultivate a consistent connection to land when you're kind of not necessarily in the same spot consistently Mm, I mean I'm totally fascinated with all of the different geology and just biology of the west and I mean the, the whole world really but everywhere I go it's really interesting to see what plants are growing there and kind of or what you know like what are the different rock formations that I'm seeing or what's familiar and what's new um and so the more I move around that those those little things are really um I think what connects me is is what I learn about a place or or where the water goes or um what wildlife is you know like there's so many different things that comes with a place and and I find too that that's a good way to help people get through their troubles is to be able to get to know a place and get to know like every facet of of it and why it's different and and working on a trail too is is neat because you are progressing forward the whole time um and there's so there's a movement in that and every day you walk back over your trail and there's some trails that I know like the back of my hand that I worked on for weeks and weeks and and still I'll go back there and I'll and I'll wait to see like the one tree that I saw every day for a month or something you know and that I decorated with all the shiny rocks that you know it's like you just create it becomes like your house it's like your bedroom um but you're just out in the wilderness and you get to know it like you would know a city or something it's there's all these little landmarks and little places and there's just there's so much to learn in your experience what is the gender divide between men and women on these in this type of work um this work oftentimes the closest um relative industries um other than conservation work or that are related to that is the timber industry um and firefighting um, which are almost completely male dominant industries um, and then also generally like conservation work started as um, the CCCs which was a way for men returning from the war um, to continue sort of being comrades and like doing work together it was kind of that bridge um, so what I see a lot is I mean in my field there's 
probably for every eight male staff that we'll have, we'll have two women or three women. Um, and, and people, you know, things are changing and they're also, I mean, they're also kind of remaining the same. I think there's more of an awareness now, but to think about just generally like working with tools like chainsaws and cross cuts and swinging heavy digging tools all day and like carrying things and like wearing boots and wearing work pants and and being in charge and sort of like and leading like commanding this field in like a in like a very volatile situation um it's very very common um for the males to step into sort of a dominant like protector role out there um and it'll be interesting because like there's things that I'm trained to do and things that I'm very confident doing um and whether it's one of my contacts like someone who I'm working for you know that's in charge of our project kind of undermining what I could do or like generally like if someone's coming to approach me about what what our project is for the week oftentimes if there's a male staff they'll walk past me and go straight to the male because they don't they see maybe me as more of yeah like the the caretaker for the kids and then the, the man would be the logistical um support for the project more so but a lot of times in in my case I have way more training than a lot of the guys and or whether it's like uh, even little things like sometimes I'll be doing something like going to move like a heavy thing that I know that I can move and I, and I feel strong when I move it and I don't have any doubts and I don't I don't even want help um and somebody will come over and just be like oh I got this you know and it's like little things like that where there's kind of a line of okay are you helping me or like I can do it you know like I want to do it um and I think it's just like this it's it's ingrained in us and, and it's taught to us from a young age of like um, that, that, yeah, like, women don't work, or they, you know, they shouldn't, or what if they hurt themselves, or, and, but I think more and more now, I see really, really strong, capable women, and my youth, I see the women tend to work harder than the males, and it's interesting, because there's this air of, like, we have to prove ourselves, we have to prove our strength, um, and it's totally there, like, and I, I feel like eventually it's empowering, I really like to encourage women to, like, step into those roles, and, and really just express, like, like, what their logic is when they're thinking, and, and watch it, and to see how we can collectively, like, problem solve, and, um, but it's, with the younger generation right now, I definitely see the women are, are much more inclined than the men, whereas the past generations aren't that way at all. Um, so I don't know what's changing, like, in people, f like, physiologically or physically, um, but there is a shift, and so, but, like, what we deal with from the generation of, yeah, loggers and, um, and firefighters, and those guys most of the time have never seen a woman in, a f in the field. They've never seen a woman hold a chainsaw before. It's, so to them, it's, it's just unrealistic, you know, and, and so a part of me, I don't expect that change, but I know a lot of organizations are really, like, moving towards, like, serious equality movements, and so I'm just, like, 
I'm super on board with that. I'm super on board with encouraging women to be in the field um, and keeping, like, emotional boundaries intact and and just really watching, too, just how, especially with teenagers, like, how they treat each other, the just little things that they say to each other that might, you know, make somebody feel small for anything, for gender, for race, for anything. It's, like, really just shutting all of that down kind of as it starts. Um but it, it can be challenging for sure. I mean, and I think too, like in the farming world, it's it's the same thing. It's just kind of like, are like e- even if you really know what you're doing, it's like I think as a woman, we still have to we still have to prove ourselves until you know until we gain that respect. Whereas like a man would just maybe have that initially, you know, until I don't know. It's a gray area after a while. How do you think? Or how in the field do you encourage young women or people of color, queer people, etc. to step into those roles? Um, Oftentimes I will, like part of my job too is to like kind of watch and observe um, people's strengths and and weaknesses. And so to me it's it's finding out what people are are comfortable doing and some people are they really like to cook or some people just really like to make jokes um and some people like to carry everything and some people like to you know like do the hard rock thing or figure something out you know that that other people can't do and um and so i like to find out little like find the ways that people um are contributing and it's easy and then figure out what challenges them and find a middle ground, or, like, pair them up, you know, find people that are complementary, um, and find ways to kind of empower them and encourage them that never, like, breaks them down, so I would never say, like, oh, that's wrong, like, oh, why are you doing that, oh, you know, because I never want somebody to feel that, I want people to feel like there's, there's room, and we're all learning, and there's, you know, there's always room for improvement, and, like, I want people to feel comfortable, for how they are, so I'll never, like, if there's one person that's really good at the one thing, a lot of times I'll, I'll take that person off that thing and say, like, yeah, you know, like, you're really good at that, but, like, let's give this person a chance to do that, um, but I never, like, isolate anyone for, like, I would never be like, oh, all the guys come over here and move the rocks, and all the girls, you know, do this, and I wouldn't do it the other way either, um, but I like I just like to create like a really equal space um where no one's ever isolated and and sometimes you'll get really big egos and sometimes I'll have to take those people back and be like you know like I'm gonna put you on this thing that maybe isn't you know gonna be you're not gonna be able to show your strengths completely but that's okay because it'll give someone else a chance to or and same with even just verbal stuff like um who, you know, whoever talks the most tends to quiet the, the little voice, you know, and so really f- engaging that, per- like, that quiet person more, really finding ways to make them feel comfortable um, until they feel like they have, like, a place in the community um, in whatever way that that is, but I think just little tools, like, finding ways to, like, even just digging and, like, and working, that's why I like that job a lot, is really empowering in itself, um, just kind of showing people what they can do and, and, and just physical strength and mental strength and endurance. Don't say the river won't flow They say it's gonna go under 
like it if you shine your light And let your love blaze like Now you'll hear from Kelsey about being a female raft guide. Towards the end of the interview, she mentions working for Girl Ventures. Girl Ventures is based out of San Francisco and runs outdoor trips with adolescent girls in different parts of California. My name's Kelsey Porter, and I work as a whitewater raft guide, and I... I'm recently started working in the outdoor education world, guiding or instructing um, and guiding backpacking trips with middle school age girls. Thank you for being here with me, mm-hmm. Kelsey. Yeah. Can you tell me about your whitewater rafting and guiding experience and what life is like on the river? Yeah. So basically consists of four and five day long trips of carrying down all the gear on our boats and doing rapids and whitewater stuff during the day and side hikes and lots of water slides, natural water park type of activities, and then camping on beaches on the side of the river, some pretty solid gourmet camp cooking, and do it all the next day. What is it like being a female raft guide in the industry in general or the place where you work? Um, Is it common to be a female raft guide? Yeah, so I would say generally um, I have probably a pretty different experience than a lot of other women in the whitewater world because I work at a primarily female company. So, well, the branch of the company that I work at um, is female run and is probably like 75% female. So our trips are often one male and five females, um, which in most companies would be five males and one female. So a lot of rafting companies have a rule that for the guide team and the um, client's sake, they require that there's at least one female guide on each trip, Mm -hmm. which for a lot of companies means scrounging for a female guide um, because it's a very male-dominated field. So I have a pretty unique experience in that, and that's part of one of the major reasons I switched to this operation is to work with and for other rad, strong, powerful women, and that's how I wanted to learn how to do multi-day rafting, and I'm really, really happy with that um, environment for learning and growing and thriving. Can you tell me about, like, the community of women on the water and the relationships you've formed and how it's influenced you either emotionally, spiritually? Yeah, absolutely. I feel feel like I have a wonderful guide community. Um, It's, it's, yeah, it's really special. You get pretty close to people quickly. Um, in that kind of environment because you're, you're, you have to work together so much and you're in, anytime that you're in an outdoor space with outdoor elements, you, you got to be quick on your feet when it comes to problem solving and, um, any type of interpersonal issues, there really isn't room for that. So you, you really bond and you really get close and you, uh, you're really there for each other. And I feel, um, I've definitely felt, I've worked at other, other, um, locations with oars and I didn't feel that same um connectedness of particularly with women um and I've even even at oars Oregon been randomly on trips where there were four men and two women on the trip 
um, which is rare, but it's happened and it definitely did not feel like that same, um, I didn't feel the same support system. I really didn't. Um, I felt, I felt that there was a totally different group energy. Um, and I felt very connected to the one other woman on the trip and we really noticed a huge difference in how supported and how heard we felt on our trip, uh, on the guide team and as, as female guides from the clients, I think Mm -hmm. I definitely felt uh, a little bit less heard. Um, and on that trip got a lot more compliments in quote unquote compliments of like, wow, I'm so impressed that you and that you and that you two women can do this or like, wow, like that was pretty amazing, which is meant as a compliment, but is, um, in a male dominated space, particularly like that one, when we were the two women doing all of the exact same things, uh, none of our male co- uh, coworkers got compliments about what they were doing or were told they were doing a great job, uh, cause it was expected and obvious that they could do it. And so there was like this wow factor of like, wow, look at this strong woman. Uh, which I know was meant with very great intention, but mm-hmm. is definitely a microaggression that um, you you see in the rafting world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what do you kind of what tools do you use, or other women around you use to kind of like break down those barriers of uh, those dynamics? Yeah. Well, there's definitely a balance of being on the customer service side and wanting to. Mm-hmm address the microaggression so I feel there are certain scenarios where as as a worker for a company I have to just smile and not make uh make anything out of it for some of those comments because ultimately the people coming on the rafting trips with oars are there for vacation they're paying a lot of money to be on vacation they aren't seeking out like an intentional growth filled wilderness experience the way that maybe someone on a girl ventures course would be which is my backpacking job um so it's not they're not paying for growth or intentional space they are paying for vacation and those are that's when it's hard because me as a person wants to say something (laughs) but me as a worker has to kind of keep my mouth shut sometimes so I feel like the best way to address those situations with my specific job now is just to to take it as a compliment and also just keep showing just keep demonstrating because I've I've also had comments from a grandma for example the end of the trip who hugged me and started almost crying and said thank you so much for showing my my granddaughter and my grandson what how strong and powerful a woman can be and those are the people that keep me doing what I do. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So cool. So I know that you have a connection to the river and being on the water and water can be kind of a really feminine energy in a lot of, uh, from a lot of viewpoints. What are, what's your take on that and what's your connection to the water? Yeah, I have, I would say I have a super, super strong connection to the river, um, to all water, but particularly the river is something that it's almost an inexplicable connection. I, I, I don't even know what it is that about the river, but at my whole life, um, not even necessarily, it's not, I'm not talking about like the rafting or the sport that is happening on the river. I'm just mean like being in the presence of a river my whole life. If I, even if I'm on a hike or a walk or driving and I'm passing by a river, it's like, I can't 
look away. Like, I, I just feel this, I just think it's the most incredible, beautiful, ever-changing piece of nature that mm-hmm. makes me feel like I'm in the right place. Whenever I see a river and spend time with a river, I'm like, this is where I need to be right now. It's the place that I feel most at home and most centered and most whole and most connected both to myself and what's going on. So what about river conservation? Like, do you ever, mm. in terms of ecology and preserving these spaces for other people and perhaps, you know, young girls, since mm-hmm. you're now working with yeah. with out, young girls in the outdoors, how do you see, like, what's, how do you see your role in uh, river conservation and ecology? Absolutely. Yeah. That's something that I've gotten way more into recently. Um, I started feeling a little bit unfulfilled with with myself almost in this guiding role and wanting, craving, um, a little bit more from it than just taking people down the river. Cause I, I do think that, um, it is a sense of, um, maybe not conservation, but showing people how amazing a place is and making them care about it is in a sense playing into, um, the whole scene of conservation. But, uh, it started to feel a little bit too indirect for me. Um, and so I've actually been doing a lot more reading and research, um, cause I don't have a formal education background in river ecology. Um, and so I've actually started, yeah, doing kind of like some self-education on that. And I actually got in touch with, um, a woman who works for the river, uh, the rogue river keeper. And she, uh, one of the main conservation, um, efforts on the Rogue River in Southern Oregon, and she uh, actually sent me a ton of resources, and I actually recently put together a presentation that I give on every trip now, um, usually on, like, the last morning, um, where I do a very, um, very brief river ecology lesson, so, like, very basic terms, so it's accessible to everyone on the trip, which are everyone from 8-year-olds to 80-year-olds, um, with all ranges of education backgrounds and river experiences, outdoor experiences in general. So I do a real basic, um, here's what makes a river healthy, here's what makes a river unhealthy talk, uh, which then leads into a talk on the dam history on the Rogue River, um, which kind of terminates in a realizing how lucky you are to be in this place. Um, And because of the nature of our oars trips, the nature of them being um, vacation, I end it on a, we're really lucky to be here, appreciate what you just experienced and take this with you. Um, but I, I guess in my ideal world, it would end more on a like, here's what needs to happen. Here's what you can do. Um, but for, for the sake of the people there and why they're there, I don't think that would be an appropriate, um, or effective end to that talk. So I, it could be a little more, action oriented Mm -hmm. if it were up to me. Um, but that is a a route that I'm thinking will, will be kind of the next piece of my river relationship is more than just guiding, um, doing more private trips, uh, first of all, to keep that, cultivate that relationship with the river that I have for myself instead of 
always being the facilitator for others to experience the river. So definitely keeping that relationship strong with private trips and kayaking, but also doing more river advocacy and um, hopefully doing some some training and maybe even taking a class or two on river and stream ecology and trying to get a little more hands-on with keeping this thing that this being that is so special to me healthy and around so and free flowing <laughs> yeah what would your call to action be if you uh if you mm. could give that to your audience my call to action <laughs> <laughs> let's see like what i want everyone yeah to what, take what, away what would you what? say to the clients if you <laughs> could say this is what needs to happen and this is what you need to do yeah i mean i think i would i would say that they need to find what piece of them they can be most effective doing. So, you know, it may be going to your local river cleanup day. I mean, almost every river has one. It could be calling your senator and or writing letters, you know, getting more into the macro approach of writing letters and looking for more change on, uh, you know, dam removals, for example, or restoration projects that need funding and things that are trying to be passed on a more macro level. Um, or even just being aware. I think the biggest thing is being even aware of placing yourself in a larger context of your watershed. So I think that would be the most, I think the most broad, um, and effective start for people. Because then from there, if you, if you understand how you are a piece of this watershed and you're understanding aside from just filling your water bottle from your sink or, which hopefully you're not buying bottled water, but that's a whole other thing we can get into. But hopefully you're filling your water bottle from your tap. Um, but anyway, how much water you're using, how long you're showering. If, if the water you're using at your home or at your work is in your mind just an endless tap, you don't, you're not understanding the larger context. So if anything, I would want people to leave in, because I present them with the Rogue River watershed and my, my, dream would be that people would go home and be like where does my water come from what's my watershed and they would look up their local watershed and see how all the different streams and rivers and their tributaries um, are what are they a product of are they snow melt are they springs where are they flowing before they get to me where does the water from the street where do the st storm drains go so thinking about where the water is going and where it's coming from in their own context and placing themselves in that I think would be the most broad reaching. Do you have any heroes <laughs> or role models that you look up to? I would say Katie Lee is the first woman like rocking strong river loving woman that I the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Katie Lee experienced Glen Canyon before uh, she's one of the last people who got to experience Glen Canyon before it was dammed and drowned. Um, and she has written a lot of books. She was also a singer. She was in Hollywood for a while before that. And she's a folk singer. And she she's probably 85 years old now. Um, but she's just a fiery, strong, amazing woman who, after seeing Glen Canyon and falling in love with the river... Um, turned that love and fire into into activism and was a huge advocate um, and ended up losing that specific battle for Glen Canyon, but continued fighting for rivers and writing books and writing songs and um, just a really huge presence. And there's 
amazing photography of her like naked in these river canyons and just really just true presence and beauty in in some place that she also talks about this like inexplicable love and she talks about her relationship with the river with a being with not just being in a place but feeling that you're in a relationship with a place um, and a thing and an alive thing that is flowing and moving and you're you're in it, you're on it, you're part of it, you're with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your kind of newfound passion and moving into work with leading trips for young girls and why you want to bring this passion that you have for the river and outdoors to young girls. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a new thing for me, as you said. Um, and it, it kind of goes along with that piece of me that was feeling unfulfilled with just guiding. Um, another piece of me is feeling like, uh, facilitating vacations is in a sense, it's amazing that you can do that for someone and show them this place. Um, but I, I want to see the intentional aspect of that. So I, I want to, I always find a client or several on our trips that, that really want that intentional trip and they want the personal growth. They want to be having those critical conversations about themselves and about the place, um, but the overall theme of the trip is not that. And so I'm really excited to be working for a company doing trips in which the purpose of being in a place and being outside is for that inner growth in an outdoor space. So I'm I'm excited to, particularly with with girls um, and women working with other women. Um, yeah, I feel really, really strongly that it's going to produce a lot of growth for me as an instructor, uh, facilitating exercises with these girls and growth for them, um, working with each other, working with other really rad, strong girls and women. Um, I'm super excited. Yeah. Great. I hope you have a wonderful trip. Yeah, instructing. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for being with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to The Moon Podcast. I'm your host, Annika Rice. The Moon Podcast features stories, conversations, and commentary about feminist agroecology from around the world. With content about women and by women, we can inspire each other to create our own unique connection to our natural world. This episode featured Alicia Lang's track called Hands on Fire, Jesse Gray singing Fire Water, and various clips off of Elena Shelton's EP, Begin. This podcast is created and produced by Annika Rice. If you've been liking the Moon Podcast, please take a few minutes to review it on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, get in touch via email by writing to themoonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at themoonpodcast. Thanks, and catch you next time.